Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We've been in a series called The Grace Driven Life. We began three weeks ago, looking verse by verse, moving, if you will, through the, the letter written by Paul to the church at Galatia. We've been talking about freedom in Christ, and we've been talking about the fact that just like in Galatia, so many Christians, though they are promised the freedom in Christ, are living enslaved. Sometimes that slavery looks a lot like what the Galatians were experiencing in this letter. It looks like legalism. It looks like someone putting rules and regulations on top. It looks like something that Paul warned the Corinthians about when he said, do not go beyond what is written. God's given you instructions. You don't need men giving you further instructions. Scripture is sufficient in this regard. Sometimes slavery looks a lot like freedom. Sometimes that slavery looks like libertinism. I'll live however I want. I'll make whatever choice I want. This is the libertarian view of freedom that feels good, looks good, until you get really way before the end of your life and you discover you are enslaved oftentimes by your own choices. And so what we're encouraged to do in this letter is to live in the freedom of the gospel. Now, because Paul is confronting this in a church, he's also confronting some teachers that have brought this into the church. And so there's a controversy that has erupted, and Paul's legitimacy as an apostle, as a teacher, as a church planter has been challenged. And so as we begin chapter 2 this morning, he's going to continue his story, which is the basis of his defense, that he is legitimate. And as he continues this story, if you read carefully, you really can't deny that, that there's this huge buildup to this enormous conflict. Have you noticed the drama already in this letter? There's a lot of conflict there. That should encourage us in one way, because sometimes we still experience conflict today within the body of Christ, and sometimes we like to romanticize the way the church may have been 2,000 years ago. We look back and we go, oh, wouldn't it have been great to have been the first century church? And we forget that the very Bible that we hold in our laps this morning came as the result of brothers and sisters pushing through controversy and conflict. And we see that it's going to begin to come to a head not here in Galatians, but by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, all of this is forming a showdown that will culminate in the council of Jerusalem. But as we look at this text in Galatians, there are basically three groups. And so if you want to set the parameters of this argument, you have to understand there are three groups in play here because conflict rarely has only two sides. You ever experienced that? Family reunions? Been there? Yeah, it rarely has more just, just two sides. And so the first party is the party of Paul. That includes Barnabas, whose name means encourager, Paul's wonderful friend and companion throughout the, the entirety of that first missionary journey. It also includes a young man named Titus, who at this point in the letter is a young student of Paul. He's going to go on uh, to graduate from the Pauline Theological Seminary, and he'll go to pastor a church in Crete. He will also lend some pastoral assistance to the church at Corinth. That's the party of Paul. The second group are the Jerusalem Apostles. They personally, these are the men 
who learned personally. They physically sat at the feet of Jesus. They physically saw his physical resurrection. Everybody knows that these men are legit. And then the third group is the group that, that Paul will refer to as the false brothers. These are the agitators, and they represent an extreme wing of the Jewish Christian movement. They believed in Jesus as Messiah, or at least they said they did, but they also maintained a strong attachment to the law of Moses and the Hebrew scriptures, and they see Paul and his message as a threat to the faith as they understood it. More particularly, all this gets embodied in this young student named Titus. Because Titus is with Paul, he is a Gentile, not a Jew, and he is uncircumcised, which means though he, because he wasn't raised in a Jewish home, he wasn't raised under the law of Moses, he has not been submitted to that Jewish rite of initiation into their faith system, which since the time of Abraham had been required for all males. And so all of this is forming that showdown. And you look back on this, and this will be our temptation 20 centuries later, to look back on that controversy and go, wow. I mean, why would they fight over something like circumcision? How could they be so stupid? I know. I mean, I look at Christians on social media all the time. We never argue about anything stupid. You know what C.S. Lewis called that? Chronological snobbery. It's looking back on people that had a debate that you think is dumb while you're still having an equally or maybe even more dumb debate in your own time thinking that you're more intelligent and enlightened than they are. We're going to try to avoid that today uh, as we look at this, this subject together. But it's a fight over what is essential to the gospel. And keep in mind, this is not a small thing. And in order to understand the depth and the tenseness that we read, because this is the, one of the most dense and one of the most tense parts of this letter. And the reason for that to understand it at least, you've got to put yourself back in a first century Jewish context and understand these are people that believe Jesus is Messiah, but they're still struggling with a lot of stuff. And part of what they're struggling with is this. Isn't being a follower of Jesus the same thing as being a son of Abraham? Paul will later tell us in this, in this letter, yeah, that's exactly what. Well, to be a son of Abraham is to be after the faith of Abraham. And to be after the faith of Abraham, isn't that to be circumcised? Because Abraham... Where all this started historically, he was circumcised. Moses was circumcised. Every single one of the Hebrew prophets were circumcised. And if that weren't enough, here comes the mic drop moment. Something that Paul will admit himself two more chapters from now. Jesus was born under the law, which means Jesus, the one we now call Messiah, was circumcised. So is that essential? You know, Augustine, the great theologian, some four centuries later, would utter that famous phrase that we still talk about today, in essentials, unity. We agree on all the things we have to agree on. In non-essentials, liberty, sometimes we're going to disagree, and we should disagree agreeably because, in all things, charity. We've got to love each other through that process. And the issue is that in the 1,500 years since Augustine uttered that famous phrase, the churches repeatedly had to have conversations about which issues belonged in which category. And here we are still today dealing with that. In fact, how many of you, 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 you're here as a part of Covenant, maybe you've even been here a number of years, you love it here at Covenant, but the church you grew up in is just radically different from us. Like the way they worship, the way you were expected to dress, any number of things, right? Yeah, a lot of you. I grew up like that. The church I grew up in, I love, love my home church. I uh, love those people. Still, today, they're godly people. But if you walked in, it, it wouldn't look like this. It wouldn't sound like this. 
And some of that is just simply because we're different. It's because we're in different cultures. We're reaching different audiences. Some churches are more liturgical, some more contemporary and more loosey-goosey. Some are louder, some are more quiet, some more progressive, some more conservative. Some have rules like, you know, how, how do we handle the use of alcohol or whether or not a, a believer in Christ can participate and you know, go to the prom or, or, or what kind of way do you worship? Those things are not inherently bad. And in fact, I would say it's the combination of all these things that makes the church universal what it really is. But the damnable problem is when you take those issues and you put them in that unity category that Augustine talked about. When, when all of a sudden, something secondary to the gospel of Christ becomes an issue of heaven and hell. And the danger here is that the freedom of the gospel is lost and you start living once again like a slave. And so here's what we see in chapter 2. Paul is defending, continuing as he did in the latter part of chapter 1, to defend his apostleship. And what we see here is a grace, the grace-driven life, living in that freedom. It's not a given. It takes a lot of work. It's not guaranteed that because you're a Christian. And, and sometimes the grace-driven life is hard to find. And, and so in this biography, what we discover through Paul's own struggle and the interaction of these three groups with each other, what's involved in finding freedom? How do I discover this life that he's trying to get the Galatians back to? And I want to share four things with you that kind of emerge out of this text, four things that you need, four things that I need from the moment we believe up until this present moment and the day that we meet Jesus, if we're actually going to live in freedom. And the first is this, if you're going to find freedom, you can only find it in community. In fact, I would use this metaphor, the only water that provides you freedom is found in the well of community with other believers in Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. God's revealed something to him. And set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay, so so the chronology has to come first here. Paul's been converted. He's on his way to Syria to persecute Christians. When, once he is converted, he, he reels. He kind of pushes the rewind button. He takes a break. He goes back to Arabia. He spends three years rethinking everything he thought he knew around the person and the work of Jesus. And then he visits Jerusalem. But by this point, it's still kind of early in the game. Some of these people, he's put their children in jail. He's murdered their husband. He's done any number of other things. And so they, they still see Osama when they see this guy. And, and so that first trip back to Jerusalem, it's still really fresh and it's still really raw. And the only person with backbone enough to meet with Paul apparently during that period was Jesus' bold little brother James. And so they have this one little conversation after which Paul will return. He will leave Jerusalem. He'll go back to Syria, then to Sicilia. And people start to become believers as a result of his testimony. And so over time, it takes a while, people start to see, man, there's something different about this guy until they go, you know, the one who used to, to, to persecute us, it, it, it appears as though he's now become one of us. And so this visit that he talks about here in chapter two is a visit to Jerusalem that's taken about 15 years after all of that has happened and Paul tells us it's prompted by a revelation. He doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but the best we can tell is that God had revealed his will to Paul either through a dream or through a vision or through some direct way. God had spoken directly a special revelatory word from the Lord to Paul 
And he says, go to Jerusalem. Now, fast forward 20 centuries later here at Covenant, we still believe that God provides dreams, that God provides visions. I've seen it here. I've seen it in other places around the world. God saves people, oftentimes beginning in that way by revealing himself through a dream or a vision. God gives direction, we believe, through those things just like he did the early church. And sometimes when I say that, I'm, some of my denominational colleagues in the wider SBC, they get really nervous because Joel believes that. And well, we, believe, we still believe in speaking with tongues, not because I understand everything about it, but because there's a text in Scripture that pretty explicitly says don't forbid it. And I just know that when God speaks and says don't do that, it, it would probably be a good idea if I wouldn't do that. Okay? So I'm not, we're not trying to be hyper-charismatic here. We just simply believe this is how God speaks. Now, here's the other thing we also believe. We also believe that there are some people out there who really didn't see a dream or a vision. They just need to up their meds. That, that's what we believe. There's some kooks out there, and they do kooky crap, and then they blame it on a vision from God. Okay, And so basically what I mean is this. Here at Covenant, we love and approve the charismatic we reject the charismaniac. You get the difference? There's a difference. You say, Pastor, what's the difference between the two? Well, at least one of those differences, at least one of them, would be to ask whether the person having the vision or the dream or the message is willing to submit that to the wider community of faith. The issue is not that someone had a vision or a dream. The issue is that there's a lot of Lone Ranger Christians out there. They don't want accountability. They have no respect for spiritual authority or for the authority of the church community over their individual feelings or visions. Be very careful every time someone who is hyper-spiritual or seems hyper-spiritual greets accountability with a sharp elbow, including if that individual has pastor in front of their name. In fact, especially if that person has pastor in front of their name. Those are people who are inviting themselves into ruin and their followers into trauma. Gospel freedom is only found in gospel community, which is the very thing Paul's vision calls him to seek out. He says his goal was to sit with those who seemed influential. It's a vague reference, but within the context, it's pretty clear he's talking about the apostles. And he says, I'm going to present my message in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. He said, I, I want to make sure I'm on the right track here. I need that as your pastor. That's why there's nine of us here and not just me. Because we believe the office of pastor should be a plurality of men guarding the church because occasionally one of us is going to have some bad pizza and think we heard from God and we need the other eight to tell us it was just bad pizza. I thank God for that. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel like there's a haven here. It makes me more assured that I am less likely to become a pastor who will shipwreck his faith. Because that, that accountability is not that I'm not prone to it, but the more accountability you have, and that should really be true of any of us, we should welcome that. Does anybody remember ninth grade math? That was algebra for me. Do you, ever, do you remember, faintly at least, the very first time you saw that just ungodly, unnatural blending of numbers and letters? You remember that? One of the things that was very helpful to me back then was what, the answer key. <laughs> now, now, you can use it to cheat, and I won't lie to you, I did, okay? 
There were other times when I thought, you know what, if I don't get my head wrapped around this, the exam is coming, so I better figure this out, that I wouldn't use the answer key in the wrong way, I'd use it in the right way, which means I'd work through everything, because algebra, as you know, it's not just about getting the right answer, it's about the mathematical process being sound, it's also about helping you think in a, a linear and an analytical fashion, which is... I, man, I wish I'd understood that in the ninth grade. Then I wouldn't have been looking at my algebra teacher going, when am I ever going to use this? Most algebraic skill is not used within the realm of mathematics. So if there's any ninth graders out there, keep on pushing, all right? You, you'll get some good use out of it. But that answer key helped me to make sure I was doing it right and that I had the correct result. That's essentially what Paul's doing here. He knew his ministry was different. The other apostles at this point, their exclusive target were Jewish believers. Paul's calling is to the uncircumcised. It's to the Gentiles. But even though the audiences were different, the goal was the same. We are creating disciples of Jesus. And Paul wanted his ministry and message fully aligned with the work of the Jerusalem apostles. And so the, that's why I say the freedom that he talks about here can only be found in community. This is going to sound very strong, but I mean it because I love each of you as individuals and the body of Christ. When someone says they don't need the church, that message is not just misleading, it's satanic. Because the one thing he wants to do is to prize you away, leverage you off, from the rest of the body of Christ because you'll never live in the freedom that God intended unless you find it in community. Now, there's another side to this, and some of you need to be aware of that. Some of you already are aware of it, and you're like, you're already asking the question, how do I find the balance, Pastor? Because I understand community is necessary, but there are communities that went the wrong way. There are communities that don't believe the right things. There are communities where abuse happens and is enabled. And I, you know, I, Pastor, I, you don't know my story, but I've been in the middle of stuff like that. And I don't, and Pastor, there are communities where the end result is, you know, laying on a bunk bed with foam coming out of your mouth and an empty Kool-Aid cup and a blanket over you before, before which you were looking for a comet. How do you avoid that? You say, we need community. But how do you avoid unhealthy community? How do you avoid controlling community? Well, isn't it interesting how the Word of God answers that question too? You don't just need any community. You need healthy community. You need healthy accountability. And one chief evidence of that is the respect that any healthy community will have for every person's personal path. And we see that here embodied in one young man. In verse 3, Paul says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, there's some background here that because I enjoy humor, I find funny. And if you don't, that's okay. But for about three decades now, you've got these Jewish believers that have confessed Jesus as their Messiah. They've been taught, and they've been hearing, and to a large extent, they've probably at least mouthed with their words, faith alone, grace alone, but now they're about to get their first test case of do we really mean this? This young man named Titus. How many, how many dudes are in the, in the audience like me and you read this and you go, I am so glad that I'm not Titus. Because you've got a couple different levels of concern here. Number one, he's probably shivering a bit 
as they discuss whether or not it's going to be necessary for him to have some rather delicate surgery. And the other issue is the whole church is talking about this. Like, y'all know way too much about me. I mean, can you imagine that? That's Titus. But in this situation, it's actually an excellent test case because, again, these new believers have been saying, no, 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 circumcision is not necessary. It's, just, it's only by grace through faith in Christ. But now they got a living, breathing, uncircumcised example in front of them. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Do you really believe it? Do you really get that? One thing that's interesting here is the contrast between the spiritual path of Titus and that of Timothy. And that's where I think the wider point of Galatians is, is, is made here about respecting each person's personal path. Look at this text from Acts 16. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, some of you, that your whole faith is about following rules and regulations, your double standard meter's just going off. I mean, you're already ticked off at this. Remember, this is an apostle, so he's right and you're wrong, okay? So let's start with that, but, but your double standard meter, like, you did it for this one, you didn't require that one, that, that's wrong. This is how we get into fights in the church. So we think we gotta, the way to solve it is with a bunch of rules and regulations. And, and then when we have to use some nuance or we have to respect where somebody's at and we got to make a pastoral decision, double standard, double standard, double standard oftentimes is, is the thing that gets, gets shouted. Almost like when my two youngest kids argue over who had the biggest scoop of ice cream. We can't play that game as a community. A healthy community doesn't do that. A healthy community recognizes and respects the individual situations, not in a situational ethic kind of way, but in a way that asks this question. What will more expediently cause the spread of the gospel? Timothy, product of an interracial marriage. His mama was a Jew, his daddy was a Greek. He's going to eventually end up as the pastor of a church in a town called Ephesus, where, among other things, there are loads and loads of Jewish expatriates who have moved into that city. And in that environment, an uncircumcised pastor takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on circumcision. You with me? Titus, by contrast, is a Greek, full-blooded. He's going to go on to serve as a pastor in Crete. He's going to assist in Corinth, both supermajority Gentile congregations. And in that environment, a circumcised pastor who has been forced into that takes the focus off Jesus and puts it on anybody. You get where this is going? You see the pattern now? That's the pattern. Paul's interest here is singular. It is the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why even when it comes to his own testimony and his own missionary practice, he says the following in his letter to the Corinthians. He says to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. I ain't taking no bag of pork rinds into the synagogue because all they're going to look at is the bag of pork rinds. I'm going to become like them so that I might win them. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, I didn't do this because I think it's a sin to eat pork. I do it 
to reach those that are in that world. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So, so in Ephesus, the circumcision of Timothy removes a barrier. But in Galatia, circumcising Titus would have created a barrier. So Paul, how's this for controversial? Marches this uncircumcised Gentile right into the middle of a very heated discussion held by a council in the capital city of the religion of circumcision. Because the gospel is at stake. This is what I'm after, he says. One of the more dangerous and enslaving things that we can do is to conflate the spiritual with the cultural. Okay? Happens a lot today in a lot of different places within the wider church. Probably the more, it's not, I don't think it's, it's more greatly present here, but it presents more clearly in more fundamentalist style churches. You can only use a certain kind of Bible. You got to have your hair cut a certain way. Your shirt's got to be tucked in. I, I'm out. These kinds of things. But wherever you see a Jesus plus kind of relationship, you're, you're looking at a situation that's spiritually enslaving. And so it depends. It depends. I had a pastor call me some years ago. I was, I was serving an association of churches and one of these churches, I had arranged for him to be the interim pastor, which means he's going to go in, he's going to preach until they find their, the, their permanent replacement. And about, I don't know, two, three months in, he calls me and he goes, man, I've got, a, I've got a bee's nest that I think I may have inadvertently stirred up. I said, what's happening, Mike? He said, well, I, you know, they had that big wooden pulpit. I said, yeah. He said, that's just never been my thing. I've never done it. And so I moved it. And I can hear some groans already. That's, just, that's funny. You, you grew up in one of those kind of churches, didn't you? I moved it. And I put a stool in a and a music stand up there, because that's just what I'm more comfortable with. And I've just, man, I, I mean, people are going nuts. And so that's all, going just on that information, this is what I said. I said, Mike, are, yeah, can you, aren't you able to preach from behind that pulpit? Oh, yeah, I can do that. Aren't you the temporary guy? Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, your job is to set things up for the next guy, not necessarily to have him walk into a big pile of rubble and a bunch of people that are ticked at each other. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's true. I said, I, I'm just going to suggest that maybe this is not something worth fighting over, especially since you're not going to be there forever. I mean, your, your ultimate goal is to work yourself out of a job. Dude, I'd put the pulpit back. And he said, okay, I, I, just, I guess I just needed somebody to, to tell me that. And so we're getting ready to get off the phone after that conversation. Right at the end of the conversation. You ever had just like right at the end, you thought it was going to be one kind of conversation? Just as you're getting ready to say goodbye, whole thing changes. This is what he said. He said, Joel, thanks again so much for telling me this. I'm telling you, it was, it, there was such heat. I've, I must have had a half a dozen people tell me they couldn't even worship unless that pulpit was up there. And I said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You didn't tell me that. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, that changes things. He said, it does? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. New plan. New plan. Roll it out in the parking lot, pour gasoline on it, light that sucker on fire. That's your plan. He's like, that seems kind of radical. I said, what do you think God does to idols? Maybe you should destroy it before he does. What's the difference? You have to understand the path. You have to know. I had people ask me after the 9 o'clock service, so did they really? Did he really burn it? No, because he's not as 
He's not the donkey's rear end that I can be. I'll just leave it at that. Um, you've got to respect, right? When you allow a cultural assumption of any sort to trump the gospel, you keep people from the kingdom. So if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Let me just tell you, here's what you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus in history came, died, paid the penalty for your sin, that he bodily rose from the dead and offers you eternal life. If you believe that and you're willing to turn from your sins and give him your life and put your faith in what he did for you, you can be saved, period, full stop. That is all that is required of you. I've had people say, well, I don't know. I still, I still doubt a lot of things that I read in the Bible. Okay. What's stopping you? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. You're good. You're good. What do I do with my doubts? Bring them. Bring them. If the book is what we think it is, and if Jesus is who he said he was, then we have the perfect author of a perfect book. Your opinions and doubts don't phase him. Bring them. He can handle them. He can shoulder them. It may wig out some people around you, but it won't bother Jesus, so you just come right on into the family. Amen, church family? You come right on in. That, that was the amen, by the way, if you're an unbeliever of a lot of people who they might not tell you, they still themselves have a few doubts. Because we're all fallen, we're all on a journey. Freedom of a grace-driven life means you respect the personal path of everyone that Jesus saves. But here's the third thing you got to do. And this, again, is a balance. You have to resist spiritual slavery. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission. This is the difference between put it back and light it on fire, okay? Respect the personal path, but then there's a time where you don't yield. You don't in submission for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so the focus shifts now to this group he calls false brothers, that's a heavy charge, by the way. That's never a charge you should utter just willy-nilly. Paul, on the other hand, has evidence of his charge in the behavior and the characteristics of these Judaizing people. The first is they, they were just not what they seemed to be. They were members in good standing of the church. They were overly scrupulous and hyperzealous for the law, they were for tradition, for the laws, and, and the feast days. But in reality, they were just a counterfeit. That may describe some people in front of me for all I know. You're good members, you're moral, you're upright. You may make somebody that anyone, including me, would like to have for a, for a good neighbor, but you're prideful, you're a know-it-all, you're trying to control other people, and you love it, and amen. Anytime anybody from this podium tells the sinners to repent of their sin, but you cringe a little bit, in fact, you're going to get mad right now when I tell you to repent of your self-righteousness because that's going to send you to hell. That's what was happening with these Judaizers. It was a counterfeit faith. Number two, they were secret in their work of disruption. Notice Paul says they crept in. You can't have healthy community if you don't have transparency. You can't have healthy community if you don't have honesty. That starts with your leaders. It's why we have town hall meetings and family meetings. It's why we want to hear from you. It's why we, because there's, all, there's always angles that we haven't thought about. There's, there's issues, there's concerns there's things we'll even do in good faith, and we may not always realize all the, the consequences of that. It doesn't mean you'll always get your way, but we want everybody here to feel like they're heard, and so we open that up because we recognize as a group of pastors and deacons that if we don't have transparency, we're not going to have healthy community, not for long. 
Here's the congregation's responsibility in that. It is to not do what these Judaizers are doing. Okay? And I think about the number of churches that I've consulted with, some 560 of them, over the last 11 years before I came to Covenant four years ago, that would have what I call the meeting after the meeting. You know what I'm talking about? There's a big church meeting, then there's another meeting after it that happens in a lot of churches. Now, as far as I know, just so you know, I don't, I, now I'm the lead pastor, and so maybe I'm the last to know these things sometimes. Best I can tell, we're still right now at Covenant in the middle of a really sweet season. So don't read any subtweeting or anything like that into what I'm saying. This is preventative maintenance as far as I can tell. It's just where we're at in the letter, all right? I don't, I don't believe there's anything, as far as I can tell, going on at Covenant right now. But in a lot of churches, you're going to have people come in. They'll divide the body. Maybe this is getting us ready for something. I don't know. They'll spread slander and innuendo. It can happen on a staff. It can happen with the bo- within the body by a bunch of malcontents. Run around seeking anybody who may be sympathetic to to their passion or their concern. I actually sat with a guy about three years ago, and I remember that. I two, well, two of them, actually. One of them used this phrase, a lot of people are talking, Pastor. The other guy used a phrase sounded kind of like this. There's some bad press starting. That one, I res- you know how I responded to that one? Then shut the press down. Let's talk. We're, we're fine with transparency, open, honest. But what was interesting is that a lot of people are talking. Who? Who, who are we talking about? Oh, I, I really can't. Okay, then this, this conversation's over. I love you, brother, but I'm not going to do that. You say, why? Is, is that being mean? No, no. It's doing what Paul did here so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. We're not going to muddle it with useless controversies by people who are so spineless they won't even let themselves be known. I love you guys. Anybody that's ever approached me should be able to tell you, and if they, if, if they can't say that with honesty, they should go to the council that holds me accountable for that, that every single one of us ought to be approachable. But here's the other side of that. I got a special trash can for unsigned letters. I don't even know why you would write it. I ain't going to read it. Put your name on it. Come see me. Let's talk. I might learn something, even. But you can't have transparency, you can't have honesty, you can't have healthy community if you've got the thing going, kind of thing going on that was happening in Corinth, which is precisely why Paul said, to them we did not yield even for a moment. We need to have a meeting. No, we don't. I'm not meeting with you. That's what he said. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. There's times when there's honest disagreements. Pastors and deacons need to sit with members of the congregation. They need to hash that out. The congregation might learn something. The pastors, the deacons might learn something. We push through that together. We move forward as one body of Christ. That's a glorious thing. My dear friend, Dr. Bart Barber, down at First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, says that God has given the local church white blood cells, most often embodied in the office of deacon, but you don't have to be a deacon to be a peacemaker. Somebody who gathers around wherever there might be conflict and helps the body as a whole to push through that conflict and into the victory that Jesus has for them. But then there's other times that it becomes very clear that either intentionally or unintentionally, a group by their actions or beliefs is seeking to redirect the focus of the church away from the gospel and towards something else. And there's a point at which you go, okay, this this isn't just about a difference of opinion. 
They want this to be the focal point of the church, and that means that Jesus won't be, which means we, will, we must refuse to live enslaved to the tyranny of the minority. And so we will not yield in submission. Here's what Paul told Titus later on when he was pastoring in Crete about such people. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. You'd get rid of about 80% of the gaslighting and narcissism in your life if you just obey this. Well, it's not the Christian thing to do. Of course it's the Christian thing to do. It's right here. 2,000 years later, there's still such people. They dress nice. They sound good. Man. They're trying to redirect the focus of the church towards something else. It could be any number of things. But since it's an election year, let me just make everybody ticked off. <laughs> you think there's a chance that the church might be co-opted? either by the right or by the left. Let me tell you, the level of our rhetoric right now in this country, if something doesn't change, we are less than 10 years from civil war. Yeah. You say, I, just, I think that's overreacting. Okay. All right. If you just bought a car this year, let me know if you still feel that way by the time it's paid off. Unless something changes, here's something else I'm convinced of. The only body of believers, the only body of people that can alter that trajectory right now is the body of Christ. That's it. The one place where we either isolate ourselves from everybody that disagrees with us and we tribalize or we just say we're not going to talk about that at all. So let me tell you where we're at. You ready? You nervous? If your plan this coming November is to vote for the current incumbent, the President of the United States, because you want him to remain the President of the United States, you are welcome at Covenant. If your plan is to vote for whoever that person's opponent is, whoever he or she ends up being, you are welcome at Covenant. If you plan not to vote, not the brightest idea, in my opinion, but you are welcome at Covenant. If you plan to write in Mickey Mouse, which with every successive election cycle seems more reasonable, <laughs> you are welcome at Covenant. But if you got such a bug up about the coming election that you can't sit down and have a reasonable discussion about somebody who disagrees with you, someone whose vote may cancel yours out, but both of whom have been bought by the blood of Jesus, there's something in the way standing in between you and the gospel. Don't let Donald Trump send you to hell. Don't let any of those other people on the other side of the aisle send you to hell. Because something in your mind has replaced the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ. You're like, Pastor, does that mean the issues aren't important? No, the issues are incredibly important. Which is why blood-bought people need to learn how to talk to each other. You really believe that the gospel is the only hope of any society? 
It's got to happen. It's got to happen in this way. But there are people who are deceptive. They are subversive. They will take that or any number of other things and try to make the gospel about that agenda. And if those people are given quarter in a church, eventually they will lead that church to betray the gospel. So you've got to have community. That community's got to be healthy, which means you've got to respect each other's individuals. Then you've got to resist the spiritual slavery, the tyranny of the minority coming in, trying to take everything over, trying to make it about something other than Christ. Here's how you do all of that. You have to resolve to be unified around the gospel. There's one key verse here, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the accusation is Paul is an illegitimate apostle. Paul's response then is, okay, well then I'll go to the apostles everybody recognizes. I'll go there. It's what he means in verse 6 by those who seemed influential. He, he didn't go in a clandestine fashion like his opponents did. He went openly. He didn't try to hide who he was or what he believed or what he intended to do, which is how you know, by the way, that you're living in the freedom the gospel in, that, that, that God intends. You're not, you're not living in, under that kind, of, that kind of slavery. He said very straightforwardly, my mission is to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. And he obviously meant it because he brought Titus with him into the room. The result, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Growing up in a very traditional Baptist church, we use that phrase a lot, usually when someone joined the church. And it was our way of saying, we're going to give you a handshake, but we're also welcoming you officially into this local body of believers. That's actually not far at all from what Paul's getting at here. It's a recognition by the other apostles of his partnership along with them, regardless of whether their converts on either side were going to have a medical procedure done. You see, this is the thing about the gospel. It unifies all cultures, all peoples. One of my heroes from afar is a, is a pastor in Indonesia named Eddie Leo. Eddie's pastor of the largest evangelical church sitting in the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. And one of the things I heard him say once was, you know, every religion in the world has ethnic, tribal, linguistic, cultural roots. And, and he said, if you look at them and you're honest, he said, this fact itself doesn't even, isn't even what makes these religions true or untrue. It's just a sociological fact, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. They were all grown in a particular kind of soil, ethnically, linguistically, culturally. And wherever they go in the world, they can't seem to escape that soil. And then he gets a big smile on his face. And he says, this is why I love Jesus because the gospel will grow in any dirt you plant it in, anywhere. But it won't do that unless you figure out that the unifying factor is the gospel. Is the gospel. People look different. They talk different. They speak different languages. They have different cultural understandings of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. You want to know how you find a genuine group of God's people anywhere on this planet? It's two things, two, one of which we see here, the other we're going to see later when we get to Galatians. Two things are common to all genuine churches. Number one is a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And number two is what we see in verse 10, concern and tangible care for the vulnerable and the poor. Beyond that, there's a unity in Christ that cuts across every culture in the world. And what we find here in Paul's testimony is true of us as well. Wherever you find a legitimate group of God's people, they're going to preach the same message as the apostles, and they're going to bear the same fruit as the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that in about three chapters from now.
But followers of Jesus are going to look different. They're going to sound different. They're going to relate differently. And we have to understand that. Here in Covenant, we, we describe it in this way. We have, we have closed-handed issues, issues that have been, we haven't settled. They've been settled for us by Scripture. And then we have open-handed issues. So over here, we have the authority of Scripture. We have the deity of Jesus. We have the Trinity. We have penal substitutionary atonement. We have a bodily, physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. We have all these things that, that Scripture's own testimony is. If you don't believe these, you're not Christian. Okay? And then over here, we have whatever you believe about predestination, whoever you're voting for in November, whether or not you think personally it's okay for you to drink alcohol, uh, whether or not you think you should send your kid to the prom, whether or not, what, 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 do you, what do you think about Harry Potter, what, what, trick-or-treating, Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. There's a list, right? I'm going to miss something. This is open-handed stuff. What happened at Galatia happens in any other church when you take what's supposed to be here and you try to cram it in here. Okay? And, and that, that's essentially what's happening. Paul is speaking to a church that was given the pure gospel. Shepherdstown water. And I would drink it. But I don't know what was in this vase before it, so I won't. Right? So it's, it's pure water. This is what Galatia was, was started with. And somewhere along the line, there were some Judaizers. And they came in. And they said, you, you got to get circumcised. Yeah, you know what? Dietary laws. You, you got to, no, no more pork for you. That by itself would have broke my heart. Law of Moses, all that stuff. 20 centuries later, what do we do? What do we say? Got to have your hair cut a certain way. Got to use a particular kind of Bible. Got to vote Republican. Got to vote Democrat. Got to do this. Got to do that. Got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. And what we end up with, well, it's nasty, isn't it? It's not attractive to anybody on the outside of our faith and even to those of us on the inside. We can talk about how wonderful it is, but ain't none of us drinking it, are we? The call of Galatians is a call back to the purity of the gospel. Because every time you add something here, you mess it up. You make it about something less than Jesus. You take away freedom that God intends for each and every one of us to have. Because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. It is everything. That's the only magic trick I know. <laughs> this is what Paul is. This is tense. This is dense. There's a lot to follow in here. But this is what God has called us to do to be one body. Same message as the apostles, same fruit as the Holy Spirit. And, and over the next several weeks, we're going to learn the, the fulcrum of what that looks like so that we can live in the freedom of the gospel that Paul contended for so vociferously in this letter. Heavenly Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters.
Thank you for them, their attention, following me through a fairly thorny part of the text. And thank you for this letter. Thank you for this letter that reveals to us that, Lord, it really is all you. It is your death on the cross. It is your bodily resurrection. It is the seal of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, over these coming weeks, help us to live in that way. All about Jesus. Not because other issues are unimportant, but because, Lord, we're never going to get through any of those if we don't learn how to be a family. We're never going to be able to live in freedom if we don't have community. Lord, we're never, ever going to get over some, some of our controlling tendencies until we just allow you to direct people's lives instead of maybe trying to control them ourselves. Lord, there's so much within the school of self-righteousness and fundamentalism that needs to be repented of. And we can look at another church that's worse off, but the truth of the matter is, Lord, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in our own hearts. And Father, would you purge us of that? And Lord, would you allow us to, would you just allow that to be replaced by the Holy Spirit whose presence we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks? And Lord, I, I just pray that you would move in such a mighty way that by the time I get there, that it just becomes second nature, that these people might even be willing to, they might even stop me in the middle of the mess and say, hey, we, we got this already because your Holy Spirit is already moving and already acting. Thank you in advance, Father, for the powerful work that you do through your word. May your people be empowered. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.